Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly podcast featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center-right to center-left. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by Damon Linker of The Week, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Bill Galston of Brookings and the Wall Street Journal. And we are delighted to welcome a special guest this week, my EPPC colleague, Peter Weiner, also New York Times contributor, New York Times bestselling author. So welcome one and all. Um, all right, let us, uh, let us begin with the um, crazy week of, uh, of news. It's, it feels at times um, alternating between tragedy and farce, but that is uh, a kind of emblematic of our, of our times. Um, one of the um, one of the controversies that has arisen um, as we struggle and 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 sort of feel our way through how to respond to this crisis is a is a dispute over expertise. How much can you trust the experts, and um, how much are they possibly leading us astray? Which ties into many already existing fissures within our society. Uh, certainly there's a large appetite in the populist right to believe uh, that experts are wrong, that they are tendentious um, and so on. And you've seen, um, you've seen a lot of that this week. So um, Pete, you are our guest. Um, I'd like to start with you. Um, when you look at the response to uh, the, the argument about masks. Um, I, I'd ask you to, to, to reflect on that in light of this whole ar larger argument about expertise, because in the case of the mask advice, right, which went from don't wear them, they don't do any good, um, save them for the healthcare workers to suddenly everybody should wear them. This does undermine confidence in those who are, who are giving advice, doesn't it? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me on, first of all. It's great to be with all of uh, all of you. Yeah, I think it does. Um, but I'd say several things. I agree with you, Mona, that this is all playing out within sort of pre-existing categories and that uh, that we do see on the American right in particular, this populist strain, which views experts um, with skepticism, cynicism, contempt, or um, outright kind of conspiracy theories. And I think the important thing to keep in mind is that what is unfolding is something new. I mean, this is, this is referred to as novel coronavirus for a reason. We haven't seen this before. And you have to give experts the latitude to make decisions and to recalibrate as new data comes in. And that's not an easy thing to do. You can't make perfection the price of confidence. It doesn't mean that you don't um, have accountability. Uh, we should have that. But on the other hand, these are people who have, this is not their first rodeo when it comes to viruses. People like Tony Fauci. I mean, he's the leading epidemiologist probably in the world. Um, and they're doing the best they can. And as a general matter, I think that they're doing a good job. It's a little bit, it seems to me, like, generals in a war, you know, those, yeah. those plans that you have last up until you get into the war. And then it's a constant series of recalibrations. 
And I think that that's going on for the most part. I think that the medical experts have done well, given that the hand that they've been played. And I do worry that uh, the way this is playing itself out uh, in these this kind of political tribalism, the way people are viewing these things uh, to fit into the pre-existing categories um, does concern me and disturb me. I think it's a manifestation of the larger maladies uh, on the American right. Yeah. Damon, um, you wrote about this this week. Um, and and uh, you know, Pete and Linda and I are very aware, I would say, of the um, sort of worrying tendencies on the right um, to, um, to 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 distrust all authority um, and and to uh, engage in conspiracy theories. That's really worrisome. But I would challenge this. Uh, I would say that the left has a lot to answer for here too. Um, because, you know, for example, the anti-vaxxer thing is, is a phenomenon of both the left and the right, um, the conspiracy-minded uh, thinking there. But I would take us back, uh, if you will, to the Iraq war um, when we were facing, you know, Pete said this is like a war. So in the case of the Iraq war, um, you really did have um, a decision makers uh Confronted with making a choice, they had information that turned out to be wrong in retrospect that, that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, but un, not content to say, well, you know, he made the best decision he could under the circumstances with the information that he had. He turned out to be wrong, just tragic, but no, that it became Bush lied, people died. And everybody on, you know, in the Democratic, not, well, not everybody, but large parts of the Democratic Party accepted this, this line that, that, uh, that it wasn't just an honest mistake, but it was bad faith. Um, and, uh, don't you think that contributes to the corrosion here of, uh, of, you know, just being willing to act in good faith and give people the benefit of the doubt for acting in good faith? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're dealing with the fact that the world is an uncertain place. And as I noted in the column, uh, kind of at the philosophical level, I mean, the world we live in is always a, a complex, uh, confusing mixture of nat natural occurrences that we don't control and that we only partially understand mixed with our attempts to intervene, and some of those interventions have unintended consequences that we can't control uh, and don't anticipate and can't really entirely anticipate. And so there's always going to be free room there for critics to say, aha, if you had done the other thing, things would have been better. But of course, the real world doesn't run with alternative paths that we can try out. There are no control groups in, in the real world outside of an experimental situation. And that, that free play of uncertainty uh, is, is space in which partisans can try to, to make hay and, and get advantage. You did see it in some of the critics uh, of the Iraq war. Uh, and certainly the anti-vaxxers do it for their own reasons, too. Uh, I do Also, though, as in most of these issues, when we're kind of talking about whether it's a both sides thing or the right is worse, I do think it is a both sides thing and the right is worse in the sense <laughs> that, that, that Trump has taken all of this, as he is in so many other ways, to a whole new level, um, where at one of the reasons I don't think the press often 
completely grasps the method in his madness at, say, these press briefings where he stands there and sounds like he's just all over the map. One day he's like sounding grave and serious about all the death we're facing and and this is a war we have to fight responsibly. And then the next day he's saying, oh, we can't let the cure be worse than the disease. These people are getting out of control here. We'll be open by Easter. Um, you know, one day he sides with the experts. The next he kind of waves his hands, unsure. It's all the Trumpian method of keeping things as open-ended as possible so that any plausible scenario that unfolds, he always can say, aha, see, I told you I was right and they were wrong, and then cast blame at whoever gave the advice that he himself took and say, oh, I never thought that was a good idea. And then there's going to be inevitably a quote from some press conference where he said the skeptical thing himself. And he can say, remember when I said that on March 3rd, like that, that turned out to be right. You know, I can't, yeah. I can't help it. Everyone got it wrong. So we're, we're playing this game with him and he's better at it than most of us, unfortunately. I, Linda, I think at one of his, well, Linda, I, 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 so one thing that happened this week was that when they changed the advice to everybody should wear a mask, of course, they said, asked the president, was he going to wear a mask? And he said, no. He said, uh, but, but then the content of his explanation was pure, pure Trumpiness. He said, when I sit behind that resolute desk and I'm greeting presidents and prime ministers and dictators, <laughs> dictators, yeah, he said, I just don't see it. I don't see it for me. Now, how many presidents would say with pride, with pride, that they greet dictators? You know, I mean, it's uh, it, 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 he really does um, uh, think that it's a that it's one of the privileges of being president that he gets to meet with dictators. In fact, he calls President Sisi of Egypt his favorite dictator. Yeah, I know it's it is amazing. But you know, one of the things he did not tell us when he said, "Well, I'm not going to be wearing a mask," is that that he doesn't really need to wear a mask because we discovered this week that in order uh, to get into the Oval Office or to get near the Vice President or any of the people who interact with the President, uh, you have to go to a little room in the old Executive Office Building, and those 15 minute tests we've been hearing about, well, they're given to you before you're allowed to go into those rooms. So he is very protected. In fact, uh, he is not likely to be being exposed to people uh, who have the virus. And so he can afford uh, to be a little cavalier about not wearing a mask. And, you know, it, it's one of his many dishonesties. And I think, you know, what Damon said is, uh, I think it is part of his genius. He is the Nostradamus of, uh, you know, this uh, pandemic. Uh, he will make a thousand pronouncements. And if only three or four of them turn out to be right, people will say, ah, oh, what a genius. He foresaw the, you know, the future. He knew exactly what he was doing. And I think that is one of the ways that he manipulates people. And, you know, the fact that he goes back and forth, if if you're a moderate and you're listening to him, he does occasionally say sensible things. And so you can say, well, maybe he's not so bad. Um, so he's giving something to everybody, whether it's going to continue to work. It doesn't appear to be working uh, as well as it was a few weeks ago uh, is another question. 
Well, um, Bill, you um, wrote this week about the the politics of it and the uh, the rise and fall of the the polling numbers. Um, he, his his daily show is is the ratings are falling, aren't they? For the for the daily Trump show. <laughs> well, yeah, they're falling, which may actually be good news for the president because his performances are also deteriorating. Yes. Uh, yes. And. Uh, uh, you know, as time has gone on, uh, the mixture of expert information to Trumpian uh, self-congratulation and jousting with the press has has risen considerably. I think people are noticing that. And he also suffers by comparison to so many of the governors who stepped forward and performed admirably in these circumstances. And the, the poll numbers... Uh, confirm what intuition would suggest, namely when it comes to public confidence, the governors and public health officials are at the top of the list and the president of the United States is at the bottom of the list. Um, he has been flacking this drug, um, <laughs> hydroxychloroquine, um, which you know may or it's a malaria drug. It may or may not be helpful in this uh, pandemic. Um, but you know, you can almost sense, and, uh, Pete, I'd like to come back to you on this. There are some people who seeing him do this, um, are almost wishing that the drug will kill people so that Trump can be proved to be the charlatan that we all know he is. (laughs) Um, and yet, you you really can't hope for that, right? I mean, there's possibility that it will work, and but you know, it, there's such a hunger to see him um, exposed and to see him uh, get his comeuppance. And uh, so, do do you think that's part of what we see playing out in the arguments over this? Uh, and what do you think of the whole business of the president going out during the midst of a pandemic and saying, "Yeah, take this drug. People should take it. I'm going to take it." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'd say several things. <laughs> it, that would be really good news. He did say it. He did, Bill. He said he was going to. He said I might take it. Prophylactic. No, yeah, the good, as a prophylactic, the, I think. The good news yeah. is not his saying it. The good news would be if he actually took it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, the, this the, the way this thing has unfolded um, is um, it's it's kind of bifurcated. In one sense, the um, the public itself, I think, generally has has reacted very impressively, and it's yes. one of the reasons that we see that this curve is flattening. and And they've the estimates now, which were originally between one hundred and two hundred twenty thousand deaths, as of uh, this morning, is sixty thousand, based on what uh, what Dr. Fauci said. So they have reacted well. I but I think that the people who are energized politically have not, and the degree to which so much of what is happening in the midst of this lethal pandemic has to fit into people's pre-existing political categories is disturbing. I think that there is, among Trump critics, um, probably they're being animated by some sense <clears throat> that that they want the situation to be worse, so it brings Trump down. We saw Chris Hayes send out a tweet, I think it was yesterday, um, throwing out a conspiracy theory, which is that the 100,000 number of deaths was prob- was perhaps concocted <clears throat> in order for Trump to say well there were 60,000 deaths and we and and we beat the worst estimates 
Um, but that would require a conspiracy involving Fauci and Bricks and others. And there's no evidence that it's true. Um, and this is from the very same people who themselves were hammering Trump for saying that he didn't take the lethality of the virus seriously enough. And then when he does, and the fact that things may be better, <clears throat> that isn't a cause for celebration necessarily. It's a cause for people to say, oh, this isn't fitting into our in, into our political narrative that, that we want. And certainly on the right, that is happening um, as... Uh, as as well, there you get the sense that they want for in, for purposes of confirmation bias, reasons of confirmation bias, and motivated reasonings, these narratives to fit what they said, and yeah, that's bad enough in a in in a quote unquote normal political situation. But in the midst of a pandemic, it's really discouraging and disturbing, and I think it's a kind of cat scan on how um, disordered our politics are these um, these days. Yeah. Um, it, some of the people on Twitter that I've seen who are in the MAGA camp, you know, have been saying, aha, see, now they're saying maybe only 80,000, between 60 and 80,000 deaths. So as we said, it's like a bad flu. But of course, it's not because we don't shut down the entire economy and you know and 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 uh, and and cower inside our homes during flu season. Um, so um, so the fact that we've been able to to bring down where it seems like God willing we're we're bringing down the number of deaths is is uh, not comparable to flu. And the reason the number of deaths, if they go down, is pr precisely because people took it seriously. Exactly. And social distancing. Yes, yes. This is exactly yes. what the argument by by the medical uh, figures in, in the administration throughout, throughout the world have been saying. And we took their advice and it seems to be working. So that's good. Question mark, how long, how long you can keep this up, of course. Yeah, Linda. Yeah, let me just uh, weigh in here. Uh, you know, I think one of the reasons you've seen some of the skepticism on the part of uh, people across the board and uh, about the White House's numbers and that throwing out the 100,000 number initially is that the White House has not been very transparent about uh, giving the basis for some of these calculations, uh, despite requests to find out, you know, well, exactly what is this based on? Uh, and I, I think that raises some of the skepticism. Um, but I do think that, you know, we have to be aware that on the right, there is this rather concerted effort to uh, really downplay the effectiveness of social distancing and to say that there, you know, there are people out there writing. I just read an article by, you know, a not very well-known epidemiologist uh, in one of the uh, online campus uh, right-wing uh, publications arguing that what we really ought to do is make sure everybody gets infected uh, and that way we'll develop herd immunity and, you know, yeah, some people will die, but that's the only way to stop this virus, that what we're doing is really just prolonging um, the virus. And, you know, there is a certain logic in that. Certainly we could develop herd immunity, but I think we would be seeing uh, millions of deaths around the world, not uh, not the, uh, the thousands. And I also think we have to be a little careful about assuming that the numbers that we're looking at right now are the full picture. Uh, my guess is that when we come, you know, a year from now and go back and, and look at the deaths that occurred, uh, that the numbers are going to be higher than we're seeing because the only numbers that are recorded right now 
are people who have actually been diagnosed with COVID-19 and died after that diagnosis. So, you know, if you didn't get tested or if your test results didn't come back in time, you may not be listed uh, as having died of COVID-19. So all of this really is just to say that, you know, we don't know what we don't know at this point. And so, yes, we should listen to the experts. They are giving us the best advice they have. Uh, but there's a lot that we don't know about what's actually happening. Who was it who said that in war, truth is the first casualty? Um, it's This is a war of sorts. And uh, and it's not anybody's fault necessarily, because, but it is, as Linda says, it's just hard to get good data when you're in the midst of it. Um, Can so, I just jump in re- really quick, Mona, just on, yeah. on what you said, because I think I agree with a lot of it. But I wanted to say two things. One is, I think actually the administration and, and Fauci have talked about the models. There's there's one that the University of Washington in particular, which is um, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation that they've used. <clears throat> but there, there have been a whole, there have been about 10 to 12 models that they've tried to take into account. As I understand this, the reasons the numbers are, are, are jumping around is precisely because it was a new uh, um, pandemic you're only as good as the models and the data you put in. And what's what happened is that they had to operate on certain models, which they weren't certain about. And as each day and each week is unfolded, you plug in the data, and that's why you recalibrate the numbers. Um, and so they, they may change again. So we'll have to see. But this is just part of what life, and I, I know Bill can testify to this, and you can, Mona, and you can too, Linda, actually. When you're in government, this is one of the difficulties, which is you have to make often really important decisions in a compressed period of time based on limited data uh, without knowing all of the contingencies. And as that plays out and people watch it, you see it and, and, and you're, you're open to criticism, but anybody who would be in a similar situation would, would, would find the challenge pretty daunting. Yeah. Um, okay. Let us turn now to, um, to the Democrats. Um, Bernie Sanders, finally, suspended his campaign a couple days ago. And so Joe Biden is the presumptive nominee. There's been a lot of talk about whether um, this has been good for Biden, bad for Biden, not not Bernie Sanders dropping out, but the but the pandemic, because it certainly has uh, thrown all of the normal campaigning into a cocked hat and and Biden is does not have a platform, doesn't have a natural platform. Um, not a not a governor, not the president, um, and um, uh, and so some people are saying, well, you know, that's okay because there it really isn't any need for him to have a public position right now. Bill, what do you um, what do you think about that? Well, let me divide your question in two, Mona. Being the academic that I am, former <laughs> academic or quasi academic or whatever you want to call me. Sheltering uh, in place academic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, first of all, there is no hard evidence based on the numbers that the current situation has hurt Biden's standing with the American people. Uh, if you look at the national head to heads uh, versus Trump, uh, he is holding steady at about a 6% edge on average. If you take a look at how he's doing in all of the key swing states, if anything, he's ticked up a bit over the past month. Uh, Nor is there any evidence that 
Trump is making any new friends based on what he's doing and what he's saying. Au contraire, I think I was the first to put out there the proposition that the Trump bump had peaked and was headed down, but now there was a flood of new surveys yesterday confirming that. Uh, And uh, so the past month has not inflicted, in my opinion, any appreciable damage on the Biden, Biden campaign. At some point, he's going to have to be able to reassert himself as an important voice on the national stage. And that point is going to come well before this crisis is over. My understanding is that the Biden folks are working on a major speech or perhaps a series of major speeches where he would lay out in systematic detail what he would have done as president and what he will do as president in the face of this new situation and addressing other questions as well. I think if he gives a serious signal to the press that he's about to say something serious, uh, he will get a platform. Uh, I was, tell you the truth, I was a little bit worried about the seeming lack of imagination of the campaign and responding to these new communication circumstances. Uh, But uh, I've come to the conclusion that they were wise not to try to shoulder him into the conversation when circumstances weren't right. Uh, Speaking of platforms, Damon, um, what do you think is the lasting influence of the Bernie Sanders campaign? Well, uh, probably not as much as uh, Bernie and his followers really want to believe it is. Uh, I think point that Bill has made in the past, uh, including a, in a good Wall Street Journal column a month or so ago about young voters and the fact that uh, such a large number of them appear to be uh, rallying to a socialist message is definitely something to watch and will you know, play itself out within the Democratic Party over the coming years. So that that is a real thing. But um, I think really uh, Bernie Sanders did not do particularly well. Uh, you know, I, I, I was being puckish, puckishly obnoxious on Twitter yesterday. Uh, in How Pumpkin shocking Ranch. for Twitter. Yeah, I know, I know. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a perennial temptation. Uh, that uh, After the news came down that uh, Sanders had suspended the campaign, I, I, I tweeted something like, oh, political trivia question, who won more primaries, Bernie Sanders in 2020 or Rick Santorum in 2012? And of course, Rick Santorum won 11 primaries in 2012, and Sanders won nine. Uh, And no one looks back at Santorum and thinks, oh, how did that change the the future of the Republican Party that he managed to win 11 states? It was was certainly part of a long-term story of uh, kind of populist dissatisfaction with uh, the... the, um, you know, with the choices of the establishment Republican uh, picks. So like there were a lot of, you know, this is the old story about the 2012 election and how during the, during the primaries, you had this series of not Romney candidates who kind of surged and then, and then crashed and, and Santorum happened to surge at the perfect moment that he actually won states. 
But, uh, you know, it's not as if the fact that he happened to be the guy who benefited as opposed to, say, Herman Cain, who crested way too early, or Newt Gingrich, who who crested just slightly too early, uh, didn't really matter much. And I think the, the story now about Sanders is that he has tapped into something important among the young. The party is going to have to respond to that, I think. The Biden campaign already has his his uh, platform is already several clicks to the left of Obama's. Uh, So and they will continue to make that outreach. But as for Sanders himself and whether his brand of kind of political revolution style socialism is going to be the future for the Democrats, I, I really just don't see it on the basis of what we saw this time. I mean, frankly, my last last small point would be just. It's now more possible to see how much of a factor his incredibly strong performance in 2016 was a function of the anti-Clinton vote. Uh, You know, one reason Trump won was because he was running against Clinton. But one reason Sanders gave her such a run for her money is that there are a lot of Democrats who didn't like her either. So um, I think mixed to uh, definitely less... Uh, bullish on Sanders than uh, his own campaign would like to believe. Linda, um, do you do you think the uh, the whole you know Sanders leading a political revolution thing has been overplayed, and that uh, and that the do you think the Democrat like I saw something in National Review I think this morning about how you know how far Bernie Sanders was able to pull the Democratic Party to the left, and they said you know Biden. Biden may have gotten the nomination, but Sanders really won. Um, do you agree with that? Or do you think there's, there's any truth to that? Well, I, I worry about it, Mona. And in fact, uh, I worry a great deal about the fact that Bernie Sanders is committed to making sure that he continues to get delegates. Um, he's not taking his name off the ballot. He's not, you know, saying I'm quitting. Uh, And he wants, and he's made it very clear, he wants to have an influence on the party platform. My guess, he'd like to have some influence uh, on the kind of policymakers that are going to uh, be in the presidential uh, campaign of Joe Biden's once we get past the primary stage. And and I worry about that. I mean, you know, there are people out there saying that uh, Alexandra uh, Ocasio-Cortez uh, is a voice that needs to be, that Biden needs to listen to. Uh, Biden made what I think was probably uh, a foolish mistake to absolutely commit to putting a woman on the ticket. Um, I don't like I agree it when, with that. You know, I, I don't like it when <laughs> these choices are made, you know, first of all, months in advance. And secondly, on the basis of sex or, or race or ethnicity, and it's just crazy. Uh, so, so I worry about that. And I worry that um, Bernie's uh, impact is not going to be so much leading this huge social movement as it is in having successfully moved the Democratic Party in, in certain policy areas more to the left. I mean, he's, uh, you know, Joe Biden is certainly not primed to run a Bill Clinton style campaign. And, uh, and I worry about that. Yeah. Although, you know, compared to Bernie Sanders, Sanders, uh, Biden seemed like the soul of sweet reason. Well, of course, of course. Yeah. No, I mean, and, you know, and, and I'm certainly, you know, if that's my choice in November, Trump or, or Biden, I know how I'm going to vote. 
right? You know, it's not not a not a close call for me. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to be happy with yeah. a Biden candidacy or that I'm going to be happy with a Biden presidency when it comes to policy. I'm not. I just, you know, a lot of my uh, whole position on this issue has to do with character. I know this is something Peter. Uh, has certainly written a great deal about. And, you know, character to me does matter. And you see it most when you have a crisis like the one we're, we're facing now and you have a narcissist in charge and rather instead of somebody who is uh, looking out for the interests of uh, America. <laughs> I think I speak for us both, Linda, when I say, if God willing, there is a Biden presidency, we will heartily criticize it. <laughs> every day, every day. <laughs> I, I may have to go back to writing a column again. <laughs> um, Pete, the uh, uh, I wrote a column yesterday about the Queen's speech. I don't know if you all listened to it, but the Queen addressed uh, the British people this week, and it was a moving speech, even for somebody like me, a lifelong small R Republican. But um, but part of what was what was inspiring about her words, first of all, it was very mature and sober, and, and but it was unifying, right? She spoke in a unifying way. She spoke in gratitude, you know, she spoke for the British people, not to them, you know, about praising the frontline healthcare workers and, and other essential workers who are, who are putting their lives on the line every day for the rest of us and so forth. And um, it just, it strikes me, and I'd be curious to hear your views on this, I mean, he isn't perfect, but I do think far from it. But I do think that Joe Biden has it has an opportunity here to to be that unifying voice that that um, Trump is utterly incapable of being. Um, Trump is only happy if he's fighting, dividing, finding scapegoats, picking, you know, uh, uh, attending to his manifold ego needs. Whereas uh, Biden has an opportunity to be more of a unifying figure and to strike some of those um, notes that we could so badly that we so badly need. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, you know, if uh, I think Biden probably has to run on on two things, which is competence and, and healing, or competence and decency. And what you're talking about is is in the latter uh, latter category. And I think there's a huge opening for that um, because there is, um, as, as academics have, have labeled it, an exhausted majority, people who are just tired uh, and worn out from the psychodrama of the, of the Trump years. Um, and it is, it is telling, isn't it, that, that Trump um, divides the country even when it's against his self-interest, which does speak to something deep about his psychological and, and, and uh emotional um, mis uh, dysfunctionality. I think that he is uh, psychically unsettled when there is not division and when he's not at the at the center of of acrimony and antipathy and he almost is like a heat-seeking missile. He, he searches it out yeah when it's not needed and even when it's against his own best interest. So I think it's the only way that he operates and it shows in a way that what is the uh, Rosetta Stone, I would say, for the for the Trump presidency, and I thought this even actually before he became president, was his psychological and, emo and emotional um, profile. I think that almost everything that he does is understand through through that uh, through that prism, um, and I think it really has worn down the uh, the country. And I think that they're going to look for something um, something something different. 
And I think unifying uh, is, is, uh, is something that we all want, again, particularly in a, in a time of a pandemic. Uh, you, you would think that that is what people would want um, in a leader and you need it in a leader because the history of pandemics is not good when it co comes to social unity. The results of it tend to be that it divides people um, against each other because it's a toxic mix of isolation, fear, and fear of others. And that, yeah. that is a very dangerous thing uh, to, to let loose. And one of the ways that you counteract that is through, is through le leadership, including political leadership. And, and Trump is not only incapable of that, he's actually an accelerant to all the worst tendencies. Mona, I wonder yeah. if I could just jump in with an observation that oddly brings together your point about the queen and Pete's point about the president. Uh, First of all, you know, I thought it was absolutely remarkable that she gave that address on what was very close to the 80th anniversary of her first address to the British people. Yeah. You know, talk about continuity and stability. Yeah. You know, she gave that first address as a 14-year-old girl, uh, reassuring people during the Blitz. That's right. <laughs> right. That's, that's amazing. But- the broader observation is that in virtually every Western democracy, there is an institutional distinction between head of state and head of government, right? There's always, there is always someone, whether it's a president or a monarch, uh, who's designated to speak on behalf of the nation, and then a prime minister who is the head of the government and who is necessarily a more partisan figure. Uh, the United States is the only constitutional democracy in the West, at least, and maybe in the world, that brings together those two functions in one person. And I believe that if Trump had functioned as head of state during the past month, he could have won the election, right? He could yep. have demonstrated a capacity to rise to the occasion in a way that would have mooted uh, one of the most important distinctions, as people have argued in this show, between, between Trump the president and Biden the prospective president. Instead, he utterly failed to rise to the moment. Instead, he sank to himself. Uh, and I think that this may go down, March may go down, as the month in which Donald Trump lost the presidency because of his manifest in internally driven inadequacy to bring the country together when it needed to be brought together the most. And consistent with that theme, um, there was another huge story this week that uh, revealed this, the, uh, the, the, the deep vulnerability of the whole Trump apparatus because of Trump's emotional problems. And that is the behavior of the Navy secretary in cashiering a captain of, a, of an aircraft carrier and then covering himself in glory by going out and lambasting the crew that had cheered the captain and so on. Now, first of all, this, so the, the many layers here, the reason Modley, the uh, acting, I should say, acting Navy secretary. He was only acting Navy secretary because his predecessor could not abide Trump pardoning war criminals 
and therefore um, resigned his post. So now we have an acting secretary who told um, one uh, David Ignatius of the Washington Post who, in an interview that the reason he fired uh, Crozier was because he thought this was what the president wanted and he didn't want to force the president to do it. Um, and uh, and then, of course, then he, of course, um, made a fool of himself by traveling all the way to Guam um, to address the crew in in vulgar terms and insult the captain and make it a general, well, screw up, shall we say, to avoid rougher language. Um, but this undercuts, doesn't it, um, Damon, the president, one of the president's favorite themes, which is that he is the military leader of this country, that he is the, the guy who takes care of the military, wants the military to be strong, wants to take care of the veterans and so on and so forth. This, this whole fiasco was not a good look for him. Well, certainly not. Although I, it is a very, I don't know, darkly amusing moment uh, among many uh, for him because it's yet another example of how only Trump can do Trump. What you have here is a whole party where everyone is looking at each other like, wow, we, we have to now act like this guy because that's what it takes to do well in this party. That's what our voters want. But no one seems to be able to pull it off the way Trump himself can, which raises weird questions about what could follow Trump in the Republican Party because... I do think there will be a hunger among people who stayed with Trump all the way through for more of this, but yet very few people seem capable of landing in this, I'll say, bitter spot rather than sweet spot, because that's really more descriptive of what it is. Um, but it seems, I mean, all the way back to little Marco going on the campaign trail uh, during yeah. the Republican primaries and s trying for like three days to act like Trump, insulting body parts and acting like a, like a 13-year-old brat. And mm -hmm. it just blew up in his face. He tanked in the polls. And this happens over and over again, that these kind of B-level political talents in the, in the Republican Party try to play this game, this populist George Wallace style whipping up uh, of the masses, the rabble rousing approach that also Rush Limbaugh is, is the best at in, in the media, on the media side. Um, and they can't do it. And so I think one thing that Republicans are going to have to ask themselves going forward is like the, the question of what comes after Trump isn't just about policy as intellectuals often like to think it is like, well, where's the party going to land on immigration? Where is it going to land on uh, all these other kind of areas where Trump was sort of off sides or changed the conversation? It's at least as much going to be about style, which is really, I think, in the end, uh, what is the biggest innovation of this man is is this wholehearted embrace of kind of president as ringleader in the three ring circus uh, leading this this kind of vulgar display uh, in our political culture. And there aren't many people who can actually do that. So I don't know what it will pretend electorally for the party when Trump is gone, but we saw this week, once again, what happens when someone who doesn't know how to do it uh, tries, they just fall flat on their face and they're gone in two days. Yeah, Pete, and it, another, it, oh, it, Go ahead, Linda. It, uh, yeah. Interestingly, I mean, it, um, 
it isn't an accident that uh, the acting Secretary of Navy, who no longer is, um, decided that maybe that's what Trump wanted to do because Trump had asked had been asked a question at a press conference um, and had acted like he was in fact quite upset uh, with uh, the captain, Captain Crozier, uh, in the way um, he communicated uh, his worries about his his uh, men and women on the ship. But you know the other thing that you uh, you mentioned is you know the fact that he. Uh, was an acting, and we have another acting. This is this is a real problem throughout the government, uh, and it is one of the uh, I think untold. Uh, it's not untold, but it, but we haven't paid enough attention to the way in which Trump exercises such enormous control over the people uh, who work for him. Because, as he says, he likes acting secretaries, acting undersecretaries. Uh, even acting chiefs of staff, which is was always sort of a, a weird uh, way to discuss, uh, describe Nick uh, Milvaney, since the uh, chief of staff doesn't require Senate confirmation. Uh, but it is the way in which you know he he runs his operation in a kind of Maoist pattern. All of the spokes lead to the center. There there isn't really a hierarchy in the Trump administration. If you don't have a direct relationship with the president, uh, and even if you do, and he likes you for a time, it isn't a uh, it isn't a guarantee. But it is all uh, Trump centric. Yeah. Okay. If I could just in thirty seconds just jump on that because Linda is completely right, and it's it's a it really is a relatively small but still a serious breach of checks and balances and separation of powers. The, the Senate is supposed to be able to confirm certain appointments, and Trump has just figured out well if I just call them acting, I can just put anyone there I want, and I can just circumvent that. Uh, and uh, it's it's the kind of thing you hope when Trump is gone, we'll just sort of go back to the old normal way of doing it that isn't as corrupt. But, you know, maybe not, because it depends on who it is. Well, yeah. And speaking of that, which leads us to the other point that I wanted to get to, um, the other thing that Trump did this week was um, fire two inspectors general. Um, one, Michael Atkinson, who was the inspector general of the uh intelligence community and who was the one who sent on the complaint from the whistleblower that led to Trump's impeachment. Um, and then Glenn Fine, who is, was intended to be the, uh, the, uh, inspector general for the, uh, cares act. Um, and, uh, and, and Pete, you know, people have said, and, and as sort of a summation about the way this, um, administration runs, if you do your duty, according to your conscience, you get fired. Uh, J- Jeff Sessions, uh, you know, uh, Colonel Vindman, uh, Michael Atkinson. Uh, if you're a war criminal, uh, <laughs> if you are a, a bad actor, uh, you either get a presidential pardon or the Medal of Freedom or uh, promotion. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And you could add Yovanovitch and, and Bill Taylor to that list. And, and, and yeah. I thought it was a really big deal, and and because of the pandemic, it didn't get much much attention. But I thought that the way that he was firing and and, and pushing out these ins- inspector generals um, is both a big deal in and of itself, and again, it's a, it's a window into 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 the mind and and uh, immorality of Donald Trump. It's the corruption of government that is going on, um, and it's just spreading in all 
sorts of ways, these people are being fired for exactly what you said, for doing for doing their duty and for doing their job. The fact that Trump does this um, is a surprise to exactly no one. The fact, again, that the Republican Party is just sort of Oche or defends him for these things um, is really a tremendous, I think, indictment of, uh, of, of that party, which many of us were a part well, of. That- that life. is exactly, exactly right. And, you know, this is one of those moments where I want to, you know, shake people like uh, Brit Hume by the lapels and say, no, the reason we oppose Trump is not just a matter of manners. It's not just a matter of saying, oh, you know, he he uses rude language and, and we're clutching our pearls, their favorite expression. Yeah. No, it's about corruption that at the deepest level of you know our civic culture and of the actual organs of government. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it, it is corruption. And it's on a level that we really haven't seen in an American president, uh, probably in history. Um, and it's continuing to go uh, on and on. And, you know, Donald Trump was never contained and no one should have ever thought he could be contained, but he's never been less contained uh, than he is now. Um, and he feels free to get away with all of these things and so many different manifestations. And it's happening so often and in so many ways that, that it's difficult to keep track of. That's right. But the That's net right. effect is tremendously damaging to, 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 to ethics and morality as it relates to government and more broadly, um, to competence, um, in government. And it's a theme that you and I and others in this program have come back to, but it's worth coming back to again, which is if this had happened under a Hillary Clinton or a Barack Obama administration, the American right would be going out of their minds for mm-hmm. this kind of thing. Um, and rightly so, they would be they would be outraged by it. And the fact that they're not and that they've embraced this and um, and and celebrated and it's become a kind of model for them. It's a way to own the libs. Um, it's, it's obviously dispiriting and discouraging for those of us who, who have been part of that party, um, for so many years. Um, but it's more than that. It's, it's a real threat to the Republican. Damon raised a really interesting question and I don't know the answer to it. And, and I'm not sure if he does or anybody else does, which is, you know, this could go in several ways. One is that what Trump is doing is creating a new normal. Um, a, a maliciousness um, and malevolence in, 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 in the execution of government that others after him w- will embrace, or at least embrace in part. I doubt anybody will embrace it in, in full. Um, but they'll say, look, it worked for him. It'll work for us. It makes life easier. And it, and it consolidates our power. The other way that w- what might happen and what I'm hopeful will happen is that somebody comes in and even within the public more generally, sometimes virtues um, and, and qualities that you cherish in the life of an individual or a nation, when they're stripped away, you begin to realize why you cherish them to begin with. And it may be that, um, maybe this is apropos our times, that viruses sometimes create their own antibodies. And maybe there will be a kind of governing and civic antibody that, that, that kicks in and says, we don't want somebody who's basically a head of a crime family running the American government anymore, but we'll see. Well said. Um, yeah, I- Absolutely. By the way, don't you think that the expression drain the swamp is the most ironic thing ever? (laughs) That this person is associated with fighting corruption? Yeah, it's as he's he's putting in new swamp creatures every uh, every day of the week. He's turned into an alligator breeder. Uh. Yeah. Okay, we've come to the point in our podcast where we talk about things that caught our eye. Um, 
So, uh, Bill Galston, why don't you start us off? Well, Mona, uh, you noted at the outset that I uh, write a weekly column for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, What you didn't note was that my disagreement with the editorial line of the Wall Street Journal is almost total. (laughs) But today, uh, they (laughs) redeemed themselves with their lead editorial headlined, Trump's Wasted Briefings, uh, where they called him out in some considerable detail uh, for precisely the sorts of things that we've been talking about. Uh, And it's a lot easier for the likes of us to do that uh, than it is for the editorial board of a newspaper, I would say, the considerable majority of whose readers are Trump supporters. So I think they deserve some kudos for telling it the way it is. Can, can, I, can I jump in, Mona, because Bill stole my uh, uh, my pick. <laughs> but I, can I take the time to read just a paragraph because I think it's very telling. Oh, please do. Yes, <laughs> please. If Mr. Trump thinks these daily sessions will help him defeat Joe Biden, he's wrong. This election is now about one issue how well the public thinks the president has done in defeating the virus and restarting the economy. If Americans conclude he succeeded in a crisis, they will forgive him for reacting more slowly than he and many others might have in January. But on that score, voters will be persuaded by what they see in their lives and communities come the autumn. They will judge Mr. Trump by the results not by how well he says he did. And I think that's exactly right. Uh, What I think Americans are looking for every day, those of us who do still tune into the the briefings, is to have real information, real answers to important questions, not somebody who's standing up there practically falling over because he can't slap himself on the back hard enough. And picking fights with journalists who ask perfectly reasonable questions. Do they sometimes do it in a hostile tone? Well, yes, welcome to the world. Uh, But uh, but Trump regards this as an as an affront to his ego, and frequently will not even answer legitimate questions at these briefings. Um, Damon. Well, uh, this feature on the podcast started as picking something from the other side of the spectrum that you learned something from or liked. And I'm not very good at that. So, I mean, I sometimes do, but, uh, you know, (laughs) I, I, I spend so much of my time in my column kind of taking on the right that I often have things on the other side that I really don't like. So I, I lapse into pointing those things out. So this is going to be one of those times. Um, a week or so ago, uh, a guy named uh, Adrian Vermeule, who is oh, uh, yes. at Harvard Law School, wrote uh, a piece for The Atlantic titled Common Good Constitutionalism that kind of uh, was a bomb on the playground of uh, intellectuals and journalists uh, for much of the last week or so. I wrote a column about it. The Atlantic uh, also ran uh, some critical pieces on it, one by Randy Barnett, uh, another by Garrett Epps, who's a regular uh, uh, guy who writes about the Supreme Court for the Atlantic. 
Um, this was a full frontal assault on the uh, theory of judicial originalism, which has sort of been the, uh, I guess you could say, the unifying ideological outlook of the conservative movement when it comes to the Supreme Court and the Constitution for the last, I don't know, generation, probably going mm-hmm. on about a half century now. Um, and uh, it this is something that people need to be aware of and to watch because, for instance, there's a case before the Supreme Court right now about Title VII uh, and employment uh, protections for LGBTQ uh, people. Uh, And there's a lot of rumbling on the right that, oh, Gorsuch better come down on the right side of this or else. Uh, And there's a lot of a lot of rumbling that uh, could really get ugly. And it points to, you know, the fact that we talk a lot on the podcast about Trump. And he is, of course, very important. But there are other ideological changes going on on the right that go beyond him. And this is one of the ones that is certainly going to persist. Uh, Does originalism appeals to the Constitution and what the founders thought when they drafted it and got it um, got it? Um, uh, ratified, does that limit the way we look at the Constitution or do we turn it into instead a vehicle for winning the cultural war no matter what? Uh, so I, I recommend the, that initial piece by Vermeule and the exchanges around it as something to uh, ponder and think through because it's going to be an important debate. Right. And I would just, as a footnote, I would just add that the um, originalism was actually a response to the living constitution philosophy that was embraced by by the progressives, saying that, you know, the constitution's meaning changes over time, depending on uh, what's going on in the world. And, uh, and the so originalism was a was a reply to that, and many people would say that Vermeule and his allies are basically em- embracing the left's uh, prescriptions. But yeah, they're right wing progressives. You know. Exactly. Um, okay, Pete. You know, I've I've been pretty uh, vocal over the last several years during the Trump presidency about um, evangelical churches and how they've conducted mm-hmm. themselves in this moment in ways that I think is is disfigured and de- and to some extent defaced the, the Christian faith. I'm actually doing a column. Um, for the New York Times about how churches are reacting in this um, in this pandemic, and so I reach out to a lot of pastors and theologians that I know, um, and I was struck by how much uh, churches are leaning into the world's pain during this pandemic uh, in ways that is respecting social distancing. There were very moving stories, and the, uh, donating surgical masks, reallocating a lot, you know, significant sums of money to COVID nineteen relief, hiring restaurant workers. Uh, to make meals for the unemployed, purchasing tablets for for distance learning. It's a whole series of things. And one minister told me uh, that the number of calls that his church is getting to help is exceeding the number of people who are asking for help. And it reminded me that there is uh, something that I have to keep in mind, which is that this is a big, complicated country. Uh, Churches themselves are large and complicated. And there's a lot of good that's going on, both in churches and beyond churches. And there are signs of hope. Um, And just to circle back to what we were talking about earlier, I think in a lot of ways, the American people, despite the problems with the political leadership, which we talked a lot about, um, are rising up in impressive uh, impressive ways. And that that includes churches. And and as somebody who's been critical of them, I, I feel like that's important to say, too. 
Yes, agreed. Um, and and I would just add that um, in my own neighborhood, um, you know, the the outpouring of offers of assistance and neighborliness have been amazing. And you know, people offering to mow the lawn of somebody who hurt her foot, and uh, and and people offering to go pick up groceries for the elderly and those who are immunocompromised in some way, and it it just goes on and on. And uh, certainly, American businesses are donating lots of goods and services. And um, yeah, the outpouring of volunteerism and goodness has just been incredibly, incredibly impressive and heartwarming. And it's important not to lose sight of that. Um, and uh, okay, my, um, the thing that I, that caught my eye and that I wanted to, to uh, highlight was a piece in Reason Magazine by Eric Bohm, which uh, said, you know, about that figure that we've been hearing that 80% of our drugs come from China, which has become um, a sort of conventional wisdom just within the past several weeks. It's been ricocheting around and repeated and repeated, but apparently it isn't true. He tracked it down, found the source of this was some, was a report, a government report that actually didn't say that, and that it's actually very complicated to try to figure out where all the drugs come from. But the truth is that as far as he could tell from his uh, examination of it as a really deep dive was that there are many sources of our drugs. They're all over the world. And uh, to, you know, that the 80% of drugs coming from China figure is just not right, uh, which is important to know. And it's a lesson for our tendency to um, like Josh Hawley, Senator from Missouri was already out of the box proposing legislation that would address this problem when we don't even have the problem. So um, it's uh, it's a lesson in in taking everything with a grain of salt, the double and tri- triple checking to the degree possible. All right. Well, with that, thank you all. This was a great discussion, um, and uh, thank you, Pete, for joining us. And hope you'll come back. It was a delight to be with everybody. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Thanks, everybody. 